This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. The challenge tonight is to condense and to present an integrated whole to something about which I've been speaking and writing all semester and truthfully for a large part of my adult life. And really, unless you try to summarize the virtues into an integrated whole, none of them seem to make any sense. In fact, we ourselves do not make sense without an integrated vision of how our virtues relate to each other and work together. Putting all these virtues together, it is my assumption that you shall be a good person. So the talk is therefore entitled, What Makes a Good Person? The Cardinal Virtues in Living Well. And let's just acknowledge some of the assumptions I'm going to have before we actually dig into the meat of it. So first, it's my assumption that you include yourself and everyone in this room un under the title of person, unless we have some sociopaths here. In which case, I'm told that the psychology is above us. Okay, there we go. So if you need to, you can leave this room and go upstairs. Um, but more than just that, the question is, is what makes a person? Next, why should we desire to make this person good? And what does goodness mean for a person? And even more fundamental, the question occurs to me, what is the good? So I, I'm afraid that instead of us just getting straight into the nuts and bolts of the four cardinal virtues, there's some processes that we have to go through to get to them. So uh, let's roll up our sleeves and get to that. So the first part I have is what is virtue? What is excellence? When we speak about virtue today, we often mean a small subset of what the broader idea of virtue has traditionally meant. For it is my assumption that we commonly mean only the moral virtues when we speak of virtue. It lies later in this talk, but you also possess a whole other set of virtues besides the moral ones, that is your intellectual virtues. And more than this, it is not only human beings that can be said to possess virtue. And so as human beings, we have moral virtues and intellectual virtues, but then we can also talk about the virtues of angels. We can talk about the virtues of your horse. You can talk about the virtues of the excellence of this podium. I'm not sure I want to pick the podium here as something that's excellent. Um, this drink is excellent. Um, so what does that mean? So virtue comes from the Latin word vir, uh, or, or weir to the classical pronunciation, those folks. And that word means man. And it meant originally manliness or strength or fortitude. And fortitude to the Romans was their representative virtue. And we'll, we'll, get, we'll touch on that a little later when we do talk about fortitude. But virtues came to represent all manner of excellence, not just fortitude for them. Uh, it being 2021 and looking at the composition of genders in this room, we're going to put that to the side for a second. And I'm going to suppose there are some who would feel more comfortable with the Greek word arete, um, as it does not come loaded with the cultural baggage in its etymology that we have to deal with when speaking of virtue. So virtue is manliness. We can talk about excellence, right? That's what we're talking about is the, the highest uh, extent of a thing. So we should also be clear that there's a distinction to be made between the virtue or the excellence of things as they exist in nature and are part of the created order and the virtue of things that are artificial and man-made. So I'm told that, at least in the Thomistic Circle, there's a reading group, and you guys have been going into some of this stuff 
So forgive me if I'm, I'm covering things that have already been covered. Um, but the classical example of this, right, is uh, Plato's chair of talking about that, right? That there are four causes for the chair, a material, a formal, efficient, and a final cause. So the material cause, gosh, what Plato would do with this chair, right? The material cause of this chair appears to be uh, some form of plastic. So it's already highly artificial as opposed to a wooden chair, right? Some forms of metal and some paper, okay? So this is the material causes of this chair. It has a formal cause. That is, it looks like a chair and it's positioned like a chair. In fact, if this chair in its formal cause were, say, 12 foot tall and sitting on the side of the road, you would know that it's not really a chair chair or it's something that is mimicking a chair, but it's not quite a chair, unless it's one of those roadside attractions where people sit on and take pictures, but it doesn't properly function as a chair. And also, you would also recognize that this, for example, is not a chair in its formal cause, holding up a marker. There's also an efficient cause for the chair. Uh, a highly artificial chair such as this one has lots of efficient causes. And there are multiple levels of that efficient cause. So there's the person who designs the chair, the person who builds the chair. And of course, then, you know, the chair being this artificial construct of metal and plastic, there's all extra sorts of people as opposed to like the, I don't know, people still watch Parks and Recreation, right? Ron Swanson, right? The man who goes out into the woods and chops down his own tree and then hews the wood, seasons the wood, builds his own chair just by himself. There, it's kind of simple in the mind to think of just one single efficient cause for the chair. But then there's also a final cause or telos for that chair. And of course, there are other uses I could, I could put the chair to. So if, for example, if I abandoned my career in academia and went into wrestling, I could use this chair to knock down my opponent, right? I could also, for example, uh, be very frustrated this door keeps closing automatically. And so I look around for something that can hold the, the door open and I use the chair. Those are not, properly speaking, the final cause of the chair. The final cause of the chair is for me to sit in the chair. An interesting question when we come to this point of causes, and it, it bears in mind when we're talking about the human person, is that oftentimes when we talk about causes of material, formal, efficient, and final causes, we talk about man-made objects. And it's very easy for us to talk about what is the final cause of the chair because human beings are the one who designed the chair. And so the final cause is more imminently known to us, even if you ourselves have not designed chairs, you are part of humanity and we design chairs and tables and desks and iPads and projectors and all these other things. And we can talk about human beings have a purpose for this chair, a final cause for it. But there are other orders of being which we have not created. And so the final cause for them is not determined by us. And that's an interesting proposition and it's a humbling one. So we did not make ourselves. I know this is a strange thing to arrive at, but when we talk about the final cause of what is the human person for, and that means it, how is it good, right? So for example, there can be deficiencies in this chair that make it not good, right? For example, if I noticed it was April Fool's Day and I took out all the screws in the chair, 
so that when Julia sat down in the chair, it collapsed and we all laughed and it was great. But it would not be a good chair, right? Um, there would be other reasons why uh, in formal or efficient causes the chair is deficient, right? So formally, if I put like, I beveled a bunch of spikes into the plastic on the seat, not a good chair, not very good for sitting, right? And finally, if I called it a chair, but what I intended for it was never for sitting, then there would be deficiencies. So that comes to the goodness of that. And I would assume as well that even though we may not, by our own design, know the goodness of the human person, we might assume that there is a goodness, a final cause for us. And what is the final cause for us and how do we achieve it? And this gets into a basic anthropology of the human person on a philosophical level. Um, the philosopher Boethius from late antiquity said that, uh, and sorry, I'm going to, again, I spent most of my uh, graduate days doing classical philology, which is the study of Latin and Greek. So I have to sprinkle a little bit in there just to make sure that you know I went to graduate school. Naturae rationalis individua substantia. So an individual substance of a rational nature is Boethius's definition of a person. So what are we? We're persons, right? individual substances of a rational nature. Now, there are other individual substances of a rational nature that are not humans. God has three persons, I'm told, right? There are also angels, which are persons, and they're not really the subject of tonight's talk. And that gets into whole other things, and you can go read the sum on that. But what I want to ask is, all right, starting with this supposition of Boethius, the individual substance of a rational nature is a person. What makes a person good? So the question I ask is the same question as the psalmist. What is man that thou art mindful of him? So first, man is a creature composed of body and soul. Already you can see that I take a stand against philosophical dualism that looks to limit the human person to merely the physical matter and chemical reactions. And I also oppose the hyper-spiritualism that does not acknowledge that our embodied reality is part of our final cause. That is, um, a lot of times in circles you'll meet people who, like, they're in heaven, everything is perfect and achieved once they've died with neglecting the resurrection, right? Which is that weird thing about Catholicism. So as animals, we possess a soul. Uh, sorry. Uh, while you are welcome to read other sources, my own understanding of, I mean, I don't think I have to explain you having a body to yourself. That should be manifest, right? But what does it mean that we have a soul? So while you're welcome to read other sources, my own understanding has been greatly influenced by um, the De Anima or On the Soul by Aristotle. And I'm gonna briefly summarize the points that he makes there. Um, there are three faculties or parts of the soul that we find in Aristotle. There's the vegetative, the motive, and the rational. The vegetative part of the soul is that which nourishes and propagates, right? Think of a vegetative itself, right, is, is plants, right? They grow without wishing to grow. Um, they propagate without wishing to propagate, right? They, they're vegetative. Then there's motive uh, so portions of the soul. Um, you can think of your dog, right, which has some semblance of a will, but not necessarily a free will. That is, your dog doesn't just sit there and absorb sunlight and magically live, right? Your dog will smell food and go for food, right? And do all sorts of other manner of things that are, are part of that. And then finally, there's a rational faculty of soul for us as human beings. 
And this last one, as Aristotle says, is what participates in the divine and in potentiality. Adding this part into the mix makes all the difference from a soul which is transitory, which is just the form of a body which is going to die, into something that perhaps can partake of immortality. So I, we're, we're going to talk about the cardinal virtues, so I don't have time to go into all of this, and you can, you can ask me about it afterwards. But I want to take this definition of the human person from Aristotle, and I want to break it out into three more definitions. So those three other definitions that Aristotle gives for the human person is that because of the way that we're structured, such as we are, is that man is a rational animal, man is a political animal, and man is the most mimetic animal. And I want to take a second here to go through those three definitions because they're going to help us understand the order of the cardinal virtues and how they relate to each other. So the first definition is the rational animal. Um, so this definition incorporated today in the modern is incorporated today in the modern taxonomic definition of humanity. So we're called Homo sapiens, right? To Aristotle, the human person is distinguished from other animal life by its possession of reason. As Aristotle says in Greek, again, showing you that I study Greek, just being a jerk there. Logonikon, as he puts it in the Nicomachean Ethics, having the faculty of logos. Reason or intelligence goes beyond mere sensory input and processing. So you weigh and consider, consider that sensory input, or if you look to the etymology of intelligence, a creature capable of intelligence looks beyond and between sensory phenomena to insensible options. We can think here to numbers. You might teach a dog to sit, fetch the paper, shake your hand, but you cannot teach him basic algebra, much less calculus. For numbers, while insubstantiated in particulars, for example, these five fingers that I hold up do not depend on the instance. That is, if you cut off my hand, you do not destroy the number five, even though I've lost my five digits. Please don't do that. Um, so logos does not mean merely reason. It means a word or a speech. In the Christian context, from the preface of the Gospel of John, this takes on a new meaning. There we learn that the second person of the Trinity is the logos. God as spirit creates through intelligence and will. This is the magic power of words. You find this in the book of Genesis. God is not creator like a carpenter who borrows his materials. The physical world is literally spoken or rather sung into existence. Our possession of speech and reason in some ways more perfectly images the creator than the accidental possession in our body of two kidneys or two nostrils. And I would argue that we are all born understanding this divine nature of speech. Um, last little bit on, on us possessing reason. So I have five children who I'm told in text messages are currently trying to kill my wife. And I will remind you that from ages of about one to four, children live in awe of the magic power of words to bring things into existence. There's a correspondence between our mind and reality, which is going to come when we talk about the virtue of prudence. So this is why I'm bringing it up. This is why, as a parent, eventually as you, you know, find a spouse and, and have children, you have to be careful about the words that you say. If there's a two-year-old in the room, you don't say cookie, you don't say ice cream, you don't say donut, unless there's one there, because words have the power of bringing things into existence for the juvenile mind. They've not been jaded by this fallen world that we live in, right? And so keep that in mind when we talk about prudence in a little bit. So now I want to talk about what does it mean to be a political animal and how does this affect the cardinal virtues? 
So let's take Aristotle's second definition, um, and it's equally famous that the human person is to politikon zoon, the political animal, a definition he gives us fittingly in his politics. What Aristotle means by this is nothing like what we conceive of it today. Aristotle does not mean that we naturally fall onto a two-party system or that we share memes on Facebook regarding masking or vaccination policies or get upset about any of the other number of political issues that we get upset about today. For those living 200 years from now who stumble upon this recording, um, I, I talked about memes and vac uh, vaccinations and things, uh, we're dealing with COVID-19. Are we, are we still dealing with it? I don't know. <laughs> So anyway, what Aristotle means by this is that we belong inside of a community. If you really want to get into this, um, you can meet me after the talk and we can discuss um, Alexander de Tocqueville, Robert Nisbet, and some other great Catholic thinkers and other ones. But part of the reason we suffer today is because the size of our polis is large. Last time I checked, I believe there are around 380 million people in the United States. So thinking of that as a coherent political community is something that just wouldn't make sense to someone like Aristotle. Our city is a nation and we no longer belong to our cities. At best, we may have a small community in our church, maybe an extended family that meets more than once a month. But um, for centuries from millennia, the human person lived in a large nexus, a social network of intermediary communities that were bound together without sort of the um, easy facility of us unfriending or unfollowing each other, right? That we were bound together in community as political creatures. And so in some ways, I want you to keep that in mind when we talk about justice and fortitude. So looking at the time, I want to jump ahead to the third of the definitions of man that Aristotle has, which is that we're the most mimetic animal. And that's a very strange word to use, mimesis. Um, mimesis means our ability to imitate. Um, so what that means is it's the way that we learn. Um, for Aristotle, it's the basic way. Um, a child hears the parent say a sound, and then the child repeats the sound. And since we are political animals and we live in community, this mimetic quality to us, where I pick up on what you're doing, and then I imitate it and appropriate it, and then that imitation itself becomes something new, that is the way that we learn, and that's going to have to deal with fortitude and friendship as we get further on. But again, looking at the time, let's move on finally to what we want to talk about tonight, the cardinal virtues. Um, so we must now choose between two paths as we proceed. Either I can seek to persuade you of the essential nature of the four cardinal virtues and how each flows from the definition of the human person above, or I can leave the messy work of distinctions behind the curtain and run through, um, let's think of it as the imaginary owner's manual, as it were, of the human person, of yourself. So for those who remain unpersuaded that this is the way the human person works, you'll at least emerge with a historical understanding of what was a common approach to these virtues from uh, people like Plato and Aristotle through the Middle Ages with the people like Augustine and Boethius and Aquinas and Bonaventure. And even today, it's found among contemporary virtue ethicists like Philippa Foote and Elizabeth Anscombe. So it's not a bad understanding to have historically. For those unfamiliar, the four cardinal virtues are prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. You will, in certain earlier authors, such as Cicero, see slight variations, such as magnanimity in place of temperance, but 
Um, nonetheless, I think it's, it's a broad consensus that has overwhelmingly been that these four or synonyms for these four are the cardinal virtues. So I'm going to approach each of them this evening in an order slightly embedded um, or, or amended um, from what you find commonly. For Aquinas and others, myself included, there's a hierarchy in the virtues uh, and prudence is the, the chief among them. Sorry, I should actually put these up on the board. So there's prudence, and then comes justice. After that is fortitude, and then coming in fourth and last is temperance. So um, the way to think about this is that it's a divine way of looking at it. You're looking at it from the end of the story, from God's perspective, right? And from the order of the maker, that prudence is the highest of these. Uh, Again, as a classicist, um, one of the things I find most interesting were, were ancient uh, depictions of the, um, of the star globe. And one of the cool things about star globes in antiquity is that they actually were drawn from the perspective not as the way that we see the stars, but as an imagined viewer outside of the cosmic sphere would see the stars. So all of them were inverted. It's really cool. Uh, you should look it up sometime. It's awesome. So... This is looking at it from the divine perspective to see that prudence already is the highest of the virtues. Uh, tonight, I'm going to approach the virtues less from the intellectual order and more as though I are giving you, as I said, the owner's manual to yourself. So we're going to begin with the foundational virtue without which you can practice the others, temperance. So temperance is an internal virtue and preparatory for all other action. Aquinas says that of all the senses that... Um, the virtue of temperance is most aligned with, it's most aligned with touch. And I think we know of it in terms of um, what it deals with. It deals with the bodily desires and our appetites. Um, so uh, our appetite for food, our appetite for drink, our appetite for sex. And from that, uh, there are sort of four ways that you can understand each of these appetites. We can talk about quantity, we can talk about quality, we can talk about the ways in which we partake of these appetites, and we can talk about the purpose to which we use these appetites. So um, I'll stick with one that's easy and more comfortable perhaps for all of us here is just with food, right? So food in terms of quantity, I think that's the one that we predominantly associate with the sin of gluttony, right? Is that you're taking massive amounts of food in. But if you ever go and read Dante's Inferno, which again, I would recommend all of you do. It's uh, today, there's an awesome project that's uh, 700 years, of, was it 100 Days of Dante, which is celebrating the 700th death anniversary of Dante. Uh, and they're actually going through all of the um, Divine Comedy. But if you go to the section in Gluttony in the Divine Comedy, it's not just about quantities of food, it's also about quality of food. And so if you're also that kind of person who's like, can't drink, um, sorry, how many people are over 21 in the room here? Okay, can't drink like a cheap wine, right? But has to be like the, the best wine, right? And you gotta be like that snooty person at the table who's constantly, you know, critiquing these sorts of things or like, oh, a hamburger? I can't believe you served me that. Why is it not filet mignon or something like that? There's also something going on wrong there in terms of temperance. There also are the ways in which we enjoy it. So you can think of that in the American way of all the fast food restaurants that we see, right? Again, thinking about the basic nature of the human person as a political animal, you're not meant to participate in food in a 60 seconds or less drive-through extravaganza 
and then just like sadly like engorge yourself with everything as you drive and throw the wrapper out the window right be done with that you know double cheeseburger before you even reach the the trash can at the end of the drive through alley right so that also has to deal with temperance right that is are you so obsessed with getting your your animal appetites fed right now that you can't temper yourself to participate as a political animal and sit down at table with your fellow men and then finally there's the purposes to which we eat right which then that's a whole other thing and, and we don't have time for it but it's it's again like why are you eating right are you eating just your feelings because that guy didn't call you back right or are you eating because you actually need to sustain yourself like on a physical level okay uh, now, there are other virtues that are subparts of temperance that also are not just strictly dealing with our appetites for food, drink, and sex. You can also talk about um, your modesty or your self-care or your toilet regime, right? Uh, sorry, this is 19th century speaking, right? She's making her toilet, which means, you know, she's doing her hair, she's doing whatever. I, I once had a roommate whose girlfriend woke up at 4 o'clock every morning just to straighten her hair. Um, for her 10 o'clock class, right? So they're talking about like, again, inordinate uses of your time, right? That are then intemperate because it's self-care that then becomes a harm to who you are as a political animal, which is meant to be in community with other people. If you're spending most of your day just looking in the mirror at yourself, like good job, not so great, okay? Uh, there's also humility which is again, knowing that you need to temper your desires. Humility is not self-knowledge. Humility is a temperance of your desire for the good, of being able to say no to things because that will stretch your limits too far as you are as a person. Also coupled to this is meekness or the, the vice of wrath. That is, um, I wanna distinguish it from justice. So we'll get to that in a second. So maybe I'm just gonna like leave it on the shelf here. But for a second, know that meekness and the vice of wrath are not actually part of justice. They're actually part of temperance. And then finally, for students, and for those of you with access to phones and social media, there's part of temperance is studiosity or curiositas or, or curiosity. So the sin of curiosity. Now, what that is, is you have a natural appetite for knowledge, right? But that natural appetite for knowledge can be um, misplaced on objects that are not meant for you or are um, out of proportion, right? So a curiosity, uh, a, an inordinate desire for gossip, right, would be a sin against temperance. Uh, also, just spending your evening for a couple hours before you actually go to sleep in the blue light of your phone, just going through all the news feeds and the sports feeds and whatever else you're doing, right? Do you actually need to know all of that, right? Or is it part of a well-ordered life of pursuing knowledge? Right? So think about the time that you actually spend scrolling through your feeds versus the time that you say spend studying for your exams. Just a professorial comment and we'll move on from that. All of these are the necessary foregroundings that produce temperance or a tranquility of soul. And without that tranquility of soul, you cannot have self-knowledge. So the person who is obsessed in any number of these bodily desires in an inordinate way, such that they override all other desires, doesn't have the peace of mind to cultivate the virtue of prudence. But prudence is that next one that's necessary. So the temperate soul uh, lacks the incessant agitations that
that trouble and cloud its vision. So um, I want to talk about two misconceptions about prudence really quick. Um, first, uh, very quickly, as a virtue, it has little or nothing to do with the popular pejorative um, to label someone as a prude or prudish. That's just an accident of language um, because prude and prudishness derive from a French word, um, which is the root of our word for being proud, while uh, providence or prudence uh, is based on a Latin contraction pro, for providencia. Videncia is the same root as video, it means to do, to, to see. And so uh, providencia or prudence is being able to see something beforehand. So while the word, sh uh, the other misconception, while the word shares a common root, I will also distinguish the virtue of prudence from the popular way we have talking today about prudent actions, right? I'm talking about virtues, not particular actions. So we might, for example, hear that someone is shrewd, is a shrewd business partner because she or he makes prudent decisions. Often the sense of prudence refers to a kind of cleverness in action and selfishness in action, which is in fact like diametrically opposed to the actual virtue of prudence. So prudence is an intellectual virtue, which is the habit of mind for you to make your mind one with reality. So to try to make it real to the college student today, um, we all know that friend who um, thinks that some guy or some girl is quote unquote into them, right? But we all know that that is not the case. There's every actual signal that this is just not it. But because this person lacks the prudence to see that this other person does not reciprocate their feelings, right? You then can take imprudent actions where you make a fool of yourself because you don't see reality. Is that clear enough? Good, it applies to the college mind. We can move on from that. <laughs> um, but it's actually a beautiful thing to understand of like the, the virtue of veracity, of uh, a cultivation of the intellectual habit of the truth, of understanding that like there's an objective truth and a virtue in your mind is to be able to have correspondence between reality, objective reality, and your mind, which is, I think, sort of adverse to the culture today. So we move then from prudence to justice. So as it was in the days of Socrates and Plato, there's no topic so hotly debated as that of justice in the public square. As I listen to the various debates we have had over the past decade, I realize that much of our disagreement originates in a distorted relation of the various types of justice to each other. But before I get into the types of justice, I wanna give you an example that is uh, a necessary propedeutic. So um, as I was outlining this talk in my head a couple of weeks ago, I was raking leaves in my yard. Uh, my neighbor has a rather large and stately oak tree, and I was raking some of my beech leaves mixed with a large amount of his oak leaves from his tree. And as I was thinking about justice and, and talking about it today, I saw in this a good example of how justice is not the same as fairness, and that justice itself is not an exact reckoning. That is, can you imagine the absurdity of conflating justice with an exact requirement that he clean up only his leaves and I go into his yard to clean up only my leaves? I mean, this leads to um, what's lost in the process, right? We live in this imperfect world where we have a finite amount of time, and each of us in going and collecting each of our respective leaves would lose an exorbitant amount of time in distinguishing whose leaf is whose. As political animals, we cannot function as mere iota or discrete parts. We're all woven into this together. 
and we all owe each other more than we can ever presume to be owed from other people. So sure, his oak leaves may drop more than uh, my beech onto his yard, but then there are countless other examples in life where I impose by my very existence a burden beyond my ability to repay uh, the other person for their gift of them cultivating my existence. We all do this, right? This is what children are, right? <laughs> I assume all of you were children at one point, right? <laughs> and so in justice then, you, how can you ever repay right, all the 5 a.m. and 1 a.m. like feedings and diaper changes and everything else like that? There's no way that that can be done. So um, I wanna jump here uh, to a, a slide here that shows you three aspects of justice and distinguish it between another aspect of justice. Now there's vindictiveness or wrath and meekness. Now meekness is where, look, we're all aggrieved. We get cut off in line, right? Um, someone doesn't respond to our messages as fast as they could. Someone accidentally doesn't give you correct change. And so you're rightly indignant. But the virtue of justice does not look towards your own good. Right? In fact, there's a virtue called meekness, which is tempering the right wrath that you have when your rights are trampled upon. Instead, what Aquinas talks about with justice, actually, is three kinds of justice. Uh, legal justice, distributive justice, and commutative justice. So the problem from the beginning and the foundation is that we often think of commutative justice and only think of commutative justice as between what the other person owes me. And then my say in justice is being aggrieved that someone else has trampled upon my rights. But what Aquinas starts out with is saying that actually the foundational view of justice is legal justice and that distributive and commutative justice are only like or analogies to the, the real justice, which is the legal justice of what an individual person owes to the whole. That is that same sort of uncomfortable question I asked you of the fact that you can never actually repay your debt to society, right? And this is something that for those of you who read Plato, you find Socrates talking about when he has the laws. Uh, Socrates is given the, the chance to flee from the city of Athens, right? And his friends say, we've bribed the guards, you can leave. And instead Socrates says, no, I, I owe a debt to the laws, right? And so I have to pay this in accordance with justice. So this legal justice of what the individual owes to the social whole is the basis on which we can then talk about distributive justice of what the whole owes to the individual, which is an interesting way of thinking about it. And again, it's a frame of mind and a reference, a potentiality, which makes it a virtue to not always be first aggrieved about your rights, but instead think in a other-oriented fashion as political animal. Again, it's the good of the human person. It's the good of seeing yourself as a political animal and part of a whole, which then understands that, okay, and then as part of that whole, we can then talk about how do we help each other and then as well, not get aggrieved, right? To, to practice that virtue of meekness and so that commutative justice can exist where I concede other things to individuals and recognize their rights, and so can then function as a society. Last, last virtue, promise. There's only four, I've done three. All right, so finally we come to fortitude. It's where the rubber meets the road. 
The man or woman who possesses a tranquility of temperance is capable of the purity of intellectual vision that prudence provides to see right reason. And the prudent person can then deliberate on affairs as they are preparing the mind to make a judgment about justice. So there's the ability to deliberate, which comes from prudence, the ability to judge, which comes from justice. And then justice isn't worth nothing if there is a moral failure to risk in action upon the decision. Right? Otherwise, you're just living the life of a Monday morning quarterback. So I end with this cardinal virtue because it is a distinctly human virtue. This is the great part about it. I want to read um, a little bit from a book called The Four Cardinal Virtues by Joseph Pieper. As Joseph Pieper said, fortitude presupposes vulnerability. Without vulnerability, there is no possibility of fortitude. An angel cannot be brave because he is not vulnerable. As non-corporeal spirits, their intellect and will may surpass us as human beings, but as human beings, we do something that angels cannot ever possibly do. We can give up our life in defense of a cause. So if you don't want to look at it from the Christian point of view, you can look at it, say, from the classical point of view. And you look, uh, has anyone read the, the Iliad or the Odyssey? Yeah? I mean, the fickleness and the stupidity of the gods there, right? Because it's just life without end, right? And there are no consequences. They never can risk it all. You see in the beauty of the Iliad and the Odyssey and the heroes there of people who can actually risk their lives in defense of a cause. And in some ways that makes them do something that the gods cannot do. So what I want to be clear here is that fortitude is not fearlessness. Um, fortitude presupposes that you have some measure of fear and fortitude cannot exist without prudence or justice. That is, I can risk my life in defense of this can of soda, right? And that would be very foolish, right? And in fact, it would not be virtuous at all, right? Uh, gosh, I, I, that is the stupidest thing I can think of, actually. I'm glad I thought of it, right? Risking my life for a can of soda, right? They're like, no, no, this is it. Like, you can make me do this, you can make me do that, you can trample on these rights, you can enact these laws, but this is the, this is, again, we're in Texas, right? This is the line in the sand, right? You take my soda, and I'm going to risk my life. It's, it's folly. So there's, there has to be a measure of fear, and I want to jump back a slide, because we had to, um, for time's sake, go over this, that when we talk about a virtue, it's always an immediate right? That there always exists this way of saying, here's this middle of courage. And on the other hand, there's a deficiency, which would be cowardice. And on the other hand, there's an excess, which would fall into what we call presumptuous rashness. Now, oftentimes in, in classical philosophy, you'll see it as sort of a line with courage written in the middle. I actually uh, have stolen this from um, some uh, some analyses of uh, Adam Smith in his theory of moral sentiment, because I actually like it, uh, that he represents the virtues more along the lines of a bell curve, right? That like, it's very hard to judge individual actions as like, there's a straight line between here is the virtue, here's the vice, and here's the other vice, right? Instead, what there is, is sort of like a sense of propriety that exists as sort of a boundary line that we know from habit has been crossed. So for example, um, 
uh, let's not take courage here, but let's just take uh, hospitality, right? So if um, the you guys in the chapter are to take me out to dinner after this, as I understand, which is a wonderful instance of hospitality, right? If you were to like say, see ya after this talk, right? And maybe like say like, here's a bus map, right? <laughs> um, uh, maybe like stretching like from like, you know, hospitality to like inhospitability, right? But if on the other hand, like after I gave this talk, uh, Nicholas was like, here's the keys to a new Ferrari. It'd be like, okay, I just met you today. That's really cool, but it's a little weird, right? And I wouldn't trust it because it goes sort of beyond the, the boundaries of what's hospitable, right? Because it would just be totally strange, okay? So, uh, sorry, going back to fortitude and, and look, again, conscious of the time, I want to talk about what Pieper divides as three kinds of fortitude, because again, this is where the human actions, the cardinal virtues actually are enacted. So he talks about vital fortitude, moral fortitude, and mystic or mystical fortitude. Vital fortitude is essentially asking the question that I went back to in temperance, that is, are you driven um, by your egotistic anxieties that actually endanger you, right? So that is, are you taking, are you, are you acting in courage in such a way that um, it's such a matter of self-care as opposed to understanding yourself as a political animal that it's actually endangering yourself and others, right? Um, I'm not going to touch the elephant in the room of our COVID reactions, but that's something to think about. Um, Moral fortitude is the one that we're perhaps most comfortable with, where we can look at what he calls political fortitude, right? That is taking a stand on political issues, right? That is not political issues just in terms of like um, what we today think of as politics, but issues in your community, okay, on a secular level. And then he talks about what is called purgatorial fortitude, which is the soul in training, willing to risk life and to take on suffering uh, in a purgatorial fashion. And then there's also the fortitude of the purified spirit, which is the saintly. And honestly, it's something that I know nothing about since I'm a sinner. Um, but hypothetically, it's there for you to intellectually contemplate. And then finally, there's mystic fortitude. And mystic fortitude is a gift bestowed by grace, a gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's kind of like the elephant in the room with everything that I've been talking about tonight, is that um, these are natural means but for Aquinas and for the Christian, what we understand is that there's something that happened that, that disordered the natural order. And so even though these are the natural ways in which we operate, um, something is broken inside, call it original sin or concupiscence, which means that these don't function properly. Um, there are other deeper level things that we can talk about. And there's great talks on the Zemistic Institute about infused cardinal virtues, which is a really, there's some great talks about that. Because in your baptism and in the other sacraments, God gives you these cardinal virtues and you don't just have to like, we're going to talk about in a second as we end this about how do we acquire the virtues, but like also know there's like cheat codes, right, that God gives you in the sacraments to just have these moral cardinal virtues. But these cardinal virtues, as God gives them to you, are always going to be for your salvation. So God's not going to give you prudence um, about studying for your exam or something like that, unless it actually pertains to your salvation, okay? Um, and actually, I hate to tell you, but I don't 
think it actually matters that much. <laughs> it does, but it doesn't. Okay. But the other thing I want to say with this is that um, the bigger question is, all right, these are the cardinal virtues, right? Temperance, prudence, justice, fortitude. The question that we might left, be left with at the end is how do we acquire these virtues? Um, so as we look to fortitude as the end of these, we can see that the virtues are a preparation for death. Um, that is, you need to risk your life. There needs to be things in this world that are worth risking your life for. Um, the absurd thing about this is that um, it would be kind of silly to say that we can only judge someone as virtuous as if they've already died, right? So unless Lazarus is already in the room, uh, in which case I apologize, then you can come tell us about that. Uh, but for those of us who haven't died, how can we actually judge whether we're being virtuous or not or we're growing in virtue? Um, and that's where I want to pick up on that last definition of the human person from Aristotle, the mimetic animal. And I want to tie it in to friendship. So the question I pose is how do we cultivate the virtues as an integrated whole before death? So you, as a medic animal, can imitate other people. And I want to look at a couple of things that you can do. One, school. Two, sports. And three, friendship. Each of these things simulates a risk. We create an artificial sub-world, a sub-creation, where you can die, that is, you can fail, right? Uh, the class, right? You can lose the game without dying. And in friendship too, you can find someone who, again, this goes as a whole other talk on friendship from Aristotle, is, you know, what Aristotle talks about, there's useful friendships, right? Your friendship with the auto mechanic so that he doesn't cheat you and that you get your car fixed. There are friendships of pleasure, which is what most of you participate in on the college campus, right? Uh, whether that being getting coffee or some uh, drinks of, of harder substance, right? Uh, and then there are friendships in virtue, friendships in the good where iron sharpens iron, and you look to that person as something that you can imitate, and they look to you as something that they can imitate, and correction happens, and um, fraternal correction happens in a quote-unquote safe space of friendship, okay? So uh, that's it. I, I'm conscious of time. I want to leave time for Q&A, but I want to give you one last thing that I think is really cool, which is an alternative vision of how these cardinal virtues are ordered. So I want to take you to Rome here for a second. So this is uh, a room painted by the Renaissance uh, artist Raphael. And this is um, the School of Athens, which is probably uh, famous to you because a lot of like middle-aged professors don't know what to put on the poster for their class. And so they just use this. I'm sure you've seen that. Yeah. Okay. So the School of Athens. And in the room, there's actually an orientation to it, and it, it's, it's talking about the life of virtue in some ways and the, the journey and the path towards our ultimate end in goodness, okay? And so that path ends here. So the disputation of Athens, or sorry, the, the school of Athens actually involves Plato and Aristotle, if they were actually walking through the room, would actually walk forward into this, the disputation of the Most Holy Sacrament. Right? So you see all these saints and you see heaven and everything. It's wonderful. The question is, is how do you get there? So being a room and in the nature of rooms, because it has good form, right? As opposed to weird rooms that only have two walls, right? It's a four-walled room. So one of those walls is a wall of virtues. 
So starting out with philosophy, which is a love of wisdom and a desire for that good, Raphael offers us in the wall that connects philosophy with theology, a vision of the virtues. And so what we have here seated in the center is prudence. And you can see her able to look at herself. The, the puti, which are the little cupids dancing around, um, are actually theological virtues, which is actually cool about, again, we don't have time for this tonight, but how they work together. So you see the theological virtue of faith offering up a light by which prudence can see herself, right? So you can make the one mind one with reality. We have temperance over here holding the reins of her desire, okay? And then over here, we have fortitude. She's holding the oak, right? The strongness of fortitude. But the really cool, beautiful thing is that the virtue of charity is seen here picking the fruit from the oak tree. And like, gosh, I'm going to just jump ahead here, right? Like tree of life, fruit from the tree, charity, which is love, fortitude, which is a willingness to sacrifice yourself. And so you see this like beautiful Christological analysis of saying the completion of the cardinal natural virtues with the theological virtues. And there's this beautiful coupling of that happening here. But the cool thing that he does in presenting you a whole different order that's not my order and it's not Aquinas's order is that Raphael offers up on the ceiling in the center a vision of justice. And this vision of justice is sort of twofold. And so uh, you can't see it from the picture here, but down on the, the left, near philosophy. So in between philosophy and justice, there's actually the judgment of Solomon. And so there's a human vision of justice going on. And on the other hand, uh, from uh, justice over to the theological virtues, there's a depiction of Adam and Eve, which again, like, is a whole other order of justice and order. And so there's sort of a blending of these two worlds and understanding that a virtue of justice as cultivated in the human person is sort of like the linchpin that holds it all together. It takes the, the possibilities of the, the of prudence, right, of wisdom, and is able to connect it to the sacrificial aspect of fortitude, of actually taking action and living out a life of virtue. All right, I've realized I've kind of hit my time limit here and we have questions, so I'm just gonna cut it short. So thank you very much. So you're talking about, I guess, my question is, would we ever come to know or be perfect in virtue or in this life or come to know that we are? Yeah, so that's debatable, right? So from the, um, the viewpoint of, you know, of Christian, right? The idea being that like there's original sin and concupiscence, right? So um, in paradise, these orders were perfected, right? And we still screwed up. Um, for us to, to exercise them is, is pretty near impossible. Now you could like point out to like exceptions of the rule, like, you know, Mary, Jesus, right? Um, but when it comes to the average person born today, right, is that what you're asking? Can we perfect them on our own naturally? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Would <laughs> you come to know um, that we are fully prudent um, like before we die? Or is that, I don't know, that just... Yeah, thought. could you, okay, so, so, okay, with, okay, that's very debatable. Okay. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. 
Like you would say that there's some classical authors who say that, yes, you could. You'd say there's a lot of Christian authors that say, yes, you could with God's grace helping you with sort of like this sort of like uh, double workout of like you helping on your own and God helping out on the other hand. Uh, I'll give you a fable from Aesop to illustrate this. Um, sorry, it's the literature professor in me coming through. Um, there's a man from Athens and a man from Thebes who are both on a boat. Um, and as the boat's coming into shore, uh, they're still about a half mile from the coast and a uh, storm comes up and it starts to, to founder and to sink. And the man from Athens and the man from Thebes are both cast off into the, the waters. And right before the, the storm had come up, the two of them, this is me where I screwed up the story because I needed to tell you this part before the storm came. Um, the man from Athens and the man from Thebes were debating which of them had the greater patron god, right? So who was more powerful, right? And as they fell into the water, the man from Thebes started swimming to shore, and the man from Athens laughed and mocked him and said, you don't believe in the power of your gods. I really know what's happening. And so he starts to pray to Athena. And as he starts to pray to Athena, Athena, please save me as I'm in the water, right? He starts to slowly sink down and water's coming to his mouth. And the man from Thebes turns around and says, use your arms while you pray, right? <laughs> and the point being that like the man from Thebes wasn't not believing in his God. It's that he was also like facilitating and meeting the God halfway along it. And I think that comes to us in this, right? That like on the natural order, God's already in sustaining grace, given you life and given you this world and given you the natural virtues that you can pursue. You have difficulty with that because in some ways we're blinded by our appetites that override the, so there are secondary appetites that override our natural appetites, right? So like you don't have a natural appetite for, gosh, what's the latest thing that we're being hawked in commercials about? Like, like, like earbuds or what, what, what else stupid things do we buy today that like, just, there's no natural order to them. Elf on a shelf. Elf on a shelf. Yes. As a parent, <laughs> yeah. Elf on a shelf, right? There's nothing naturally desirable about elf on a shelf, right? <laughs> and so at the other, on the other hand, like we're in this world that we live in, in society as political animals, we're throwing all these other things as secondary desires on top of the natural desires that God gave you. So it's hard to recover your virtue in that because your virtues are ordered to your natural desires that God gave you, not towards these secondary artificial things. Because what's good is it's what's desirable. But when we create artificial desires, we, we conflate the good and we create artificial goods that have no or little bearing to our actual good. Right. Think of it this way. Right. There's the, the good of a pumpkin. Right. God made the pumpkin. Right. We helped a little by like, you know, making it like more orange and beefier so that we could sell it, right? And we can take the pumpkin, we can, we can order it like in our dominion of the world towards our good as well, right? Towards our like appetite, right? So we can, uh, affability, which is part of temperance that I didn't talk about. So in addition to just like eating food to live, right? We don't just eat food to live like, like animals, right? Like my, my cat, which just eats the same darn thing every day and hates me for it. Um, no, we, we were meant to eat food together, and that food is meant to, to share a little bit of the joy of life, right? And so I can take that pumpkin, and come Thanksgiving, I can bake it into a pumpkin pie, right? And so, like, my desire for pumpkin pie is good, right? It's great, because it's oriented not just to the good of, like, my need for nutrition. It's also oriented towards my good of being friendly with other people, 
and family, right? But then I can drive through Starbucks and get my pumpkin spice latte, right? And there, what I've done is I've like created a synthetic version of something that actually is good. And I've like reduced it in a way that is, you know, it's away from other people because I'm sitting there in the car by myself drinking my pumpkin spice latte. And it's also devoid of an appreciation for the natural order that God's given us because pumpkins, there are no pumpkin spice trees, right? Uh, so there's like this distortion in reality that's going on there. So sorry, I know that's a, a weird way of answering your question, but I'd say it's, it's very hard without God's grace to perfect these virtues in this life. And why would you do that? Like when it's there, it's like, no, I got this. Thanks. Right. That, that just seems like folly. So what about the relationship between mortal sin and the cardinal virtues? How does, how does sin oh, affect yeah. the virtues? Right. So for mortal sin, right. Pop quiz. Father's listening. Right. What are the necessary prerequisites? Full knowledge. Full knowledge. Full will. Okay. Sufficient. And sufficient. Thank you. Yeah. And because again, we're not angels, right? Grave and grave matter, right? So if you come over here and knock over my soda, again, I will fight you to the death for it, apparently. <laughs> but it's not really grave matter, right? So on the other hand, um, you know, we can think of any number of things that are grave matters. And again, like that goes back to, all right, so do I possess prudence, right? So can I have knowledge of reality in such a way that I can like know it? So come to knowledge of the facts, right? Uh, in terms of the gravity of the matter of sin, right? Prudence and, and justice are the two virtues that are going to be operative in terms of uh, deliberating and judging on the gravity of the matter, okay? And then finally, there's the fortitude, which again goes to the perfection of your will. That is um, one of the hardest things in my class on virtues with the fraternity guys is that there's this common mantra in today's society of like, be true to yourself and understanding your conscience and your will as just doing whatever first comes into your head, which is very different from most Newman centers. Well, all Newman centers are named after Cardinal Newman. There's a great book of his called An Essay in the Aid of a Grammar of Ascent. And there he talks about the, the need to cultivate the intellectual virtues and to build up your conscience. And that conscience there is part of this intellectual virtues that you have to cultivate in order to make these decisions. So I would say the cardinal virtues are necessary in order to discern the gravity of a matter and to make these sorts of decisions and, and to solidify your will, right? Again, like understanding us as, as having a will, which is very hard in a culture where we're seen as, you know, our decisions come out of merely chemical reactions, right? of, you know, sort of I do what I want, right? Whatever pleases me, whatever is, again, reduces you merely to appetites as opposed to intellection, which is able to, to act according to reason. So that, yeah. Yeah, Father? Um, I'm intrigued by what you were talking about earlier about infused cardinal virtues. Yeah. Um, and I know there's, I think there's a talk you said that. Uh, yeah, there's a bunch of Thomistic Institute talks where they, they, they discuss this. Yeah, the reason I'm interested in it is because, um, if, for instance, if you're presenting doing baptism prep, right, mm -hmm. just an example, since some of the folks in the room eventually have 
have children and hopefully get them baptized. Let's hope, yeah. Let's hope you have good baptism prep. So typically when you present the virtues as part of baptism, um, infusion is usually relegated to the theological virtues. Yeah. And then the cardinal virtues, sort of owing to their classical roots. If, if coupling. Yeah, are, are considered more like, I mean, we, we would describe them as sort of moral and acquired virtues. Yes. So in other words, um, we don't, I don't typically describe the cardinal virtues as infused. Yes. So that's, again, that like. Really I mean, that, I, I know this in Thomas that he talks about infused cardinal virtues. But is that, did that translate into what I would call doctrine? Because there's no doubt that the doctrine is about infused theological virtues. That's. Oh, Father, you're, you're asking me something that's way out of my depth. Okay. Um, so I think it's an interesting point, right, uh, in terms of like contemplation philosophically. Yeah. Um, I've not come to any conclusions on it. I've listened to sides. I've read things on it. Um, I think it's an interesting idea of, um, again, like on, on the point of doctrine, I don't believe so. Yeah. But on the other hand, um, understanding these as integral and understanding that like the cardinal and the theological virtues and all virtues, right, like they're always they're always parts to a whole, right? That like you can't have charity and be lacking in all the other virtues. Right? It would be kind of an absurdity, right? Like a completely intemperate person who's like the most charitable guy you've ever met. <laughs> but seriously, the guy has like serious problems with all these other things. So I think what's interesting about that is the idea of like in a limited context, that like um, there are gifts from the Holy Spirit that are, are there in order to work out your salvation. But I don't know what that would be. So that's an interesting question to me. Like what's necessary to work out your salvation from the cardinal virtue perspective, um, which is a whole, which again, like I, I don't think that goes to like, you know, giving you the infused wisdom to like pass this exam, right? Uh, or to let the, um, sorry, we're in Texas here, but I don't know who we're rooting for in terms of teams. It's mostly Astros territory. Oh, this is, I, I don't even know why I came down here. <laughs> um, so uh, it's fine. I have a, a friend who teaches in Houston. He's a big Astros fan. Um, so yeah, did, did, did God infuse those cheats uh, for the... Right. No. <laughs> That's not not necessary for salvation, right? And so there's, again, I think it would be it would be something that's like a very limited context where I would concede that. Could I, I another way that I thought of it in terms of like Thomas's description is that he thinks, if I, if I recall correctly, he thinks of the infused cardinal virtues as the means to real to actualizing the theological virtues whose greater teleology is salvation. Right, because they're necessary foregroundings, as I'm saying, for these, these virtues have necessary foregroundings, which is why I, I ran it the way I did. Like, typically you see it prudence first, because it's, it's in, a, in a hierarchy, it, it's the highest of these virtues. But from the natural order, if you don't have temperance, the other three can't really exist. And so, yeah, I would say maybe that's one way of, of looking at it, is saying that, like, um, you know, in, in order for you to um, boost up to, you know, again, we looked at the, the relationship in, in Raphael between um, fortitude and charity, uh, between prudence and faith, right? 
that like you need like a modicum of each of these things in order to have the theological virtue be present, right? And so God's just, you're, if you're not willing to build soil yourself, God's going to throw some potting soil down so that you can plant that seed. If that's a, maybe that's just a bad metaphor to add into the whole context. But I, I think a lot of this, again, no, I think soil is a good context of understanding. Like, again, especially from a Christian standpoint of like, the, the natural virtues are the soil that you're cultivating, right? So again, like where this comes out to in terms of like campus ministry or other things like that is also understanding that like you can't just like, you could just sow the word all around, but like, you know, you also need to like grow soil and pick out the brambles and discern where is the rocky path and all these other things. And the natural virtues are what come into play with that, right? And, and cultivating them is preparatory for receiving these other ones. So. Not entirely necessary, but it makes it just more awesome. Yeah. Sorry, I know that's a very slang way of talking about it. We can go into to, 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 to Paradiso and Dante and talking about our capacity for happiness and beatitude, right? And so there are natural ways that you can actually increase your future happiness for all eternity. And part of that is cultivating these natural virtues which then makes you culpable. You, yeah, yeah. All of us will have our happiness in the full as we are capable of our happiness. But right now, in the time that you have, you can work out a greater share of capacity to receive that happiness, that beatitude, and greater good. Question. Oh, sure. absolutely. So you're talking about Alniga Virtutum, prudence, Right, the charity yeah. tier of all the other virtues. Yeah. The only of the four which is an intellectual virtue. Yeah. What would you describe then the other three if prudence is the intellectual virtue that kind of is a charioteer of all the other cardinal virtues? What would be its um, counterpart with justice for to do temperance? From right. philosophy. From from a philosophical standpoint, right? Of understanding the different faculties of the soul, right? That temperance really has to do with the appetitive portions of the soul, right? And so it has to do with uh, touch and, and the, the baser functions of you as a human being, right? Things that don't distract you, essentially, right? And that prudence, justice, and fortitude all have to do with vision in some way, right? Um, prudence is the ability to, to see, right? Justice then is where right reason is then applied to particular cases. And so it's a disposition to apply right reason to particular cases as they present themselves to you. So you could have like an ability to perceive reality, but just like not care about what's going on in around you at all, which is really weird. Again, like they have to work. It would be weird to find someone who doesn't have both of them together. Okay. Uh, and then fortitude would then be again, a perfection of the will. Right. So, uh, so intellect and will and appetites, and then justice sort of stands there as a mediator. And this is why you find something like Raphael's depiction of justice over top, because justice is the one that's sort of navigating and negotiating between all of them, right? That um, justice then has this other role, which is sort of in both camps, right? That um, so our intellect, the intellect meeting the particulars and um, coming to decision, which is a resolution, which is part of your will, but that's an intellectual act. So it's an, it's an act in the mind. Does that, make, does that help, right? It's an act in the mind, an intellection act. And then fortitude as an act which is in physical reality and participates with other people. 
right? You can't have fortitude if you're just like, yeah, I would really tell them off. And you like, you like, you know that this is the wrong thing to do, but you do nothing about it. That's not fortitude. You may have justice there, but a complete lack of fortitude to actually put it into action. So it's the will embodied, right? Um, yeah, thank you, Father. That was a good question. Good. Any other questions? What are some other examples you can think of for like these secondary desires that make it difficult for us? Anything commercialized? <laughs> <laughs> anything commercialized? Um, no, there, there are all these sort of, it doesn't have to be anything commercialized, right? Your desire for knowledge, for example, can be overridden by a curiosity of secondary knowledge of things like gossip, right? So think of like, um, well, I, you, maybe it's hard for you to think of, but like, I look at my fourth grader and his like just uh, studiosity of like learning about like volcanoes and like things in the natural world, right? Which are worth studying, which are part of a created order, right? As opposed to um, our curiosity and our secondary desire of knowing like which movie star is dating which movie star or like um, all, all these other sorts of things that are like, again, like we have volumes and volumes of tabloids and papers that are like dedicated to like these secondary objects of knowledge, right? As opposed to primary objects of knowledge. Um, which I, I would say are distractions from like, from, from the ordered world that God has given you to know, right? So that you can learn about him through that ordered world, right? Um, as opposed to like, how is it bringing me closer to God and his, in creation as creator to understand that like, um, I'm sorry, I don't keep up with any of these. I don't know who broke up with who. Last thing I kept track of is One Direction, and that's been gone for years. <laughs> so. It's an acquired taste. Gossip is an acquired taste, but it's one that our concupiscence steers us towards. But it's, it's not the original desires. Your original desires are to nerd out over like the creative world and all the beauties that it has. Um, and somehow we're like memorizing um, like football stats out the wazoo. And um, that's good in terms of friendship and subcreated world to an extent, but then it become it can easily become disordered to the point where you don't care about the actual reality that surrounds you. So for example, in October, I took students at UNL on a um, retreat to the Badlands and Black Hills of South Dakota. And we did rosary meditation under the stars and just saying like, this is the creative reality that God's given you and it's instilling you with wonder and like taking you away from like the artificial lights and everything else that like skews our vision of reality and distorts it, right? Because again, on a natural level, like understanding that we're embodied souls. And so for us to be talking in this way in a building like this, under these kind of lights is a very artificial construction. And um, it warps who you are on a natural order. Um, it's a necessary evil because I delight to talk to you about the things of the mind. And those are things that we, you know, neglect sometimes. So I'm going to undergo this bodily suffering of fluorescent lighting um, for that good. But I'd also say that like, I don't know, um, 
I, I would dare you to like have conversations with your friends in a more ordered, natural way, like during the daytime, <laughs> instead of just like hyping ourselves up to like these 3 a.m. conversations in dorm rooms. <laughs> Good. Well, thank you guys so much. It was really great. Please give a round of applause.